Good morning. morning. It's great to see you guys this morning, and it's just been a kind of just a, a just an awesome, awesome journey so far through John. And one of the things I want to encourage you in is as you're trying out this idea of being a witness of the light. Uh, perhaps you've ran into some questions or some in conversations, and you're like thinking, "Man, I'm supposed to be a witness to the light, but I'm incompetent at this." And if, if you feel that way, or maybe you're just stumbling in your conversations, I want to give you an encouragement. An opportunity is called uh, Launchpad. Our Launchpad class exists to give you a place to kind of sit down and learn how to have those conversations. And so if you're interested in that, they're signing up for that uh, particular class slash group and an uh, opportunity for a discussion to just learn how to have these conversations with people who may not see uh, Christianity the way that we see it and uh, who are not following Christ. So that said, we have uh, been in the book of John. We've been studying through and we just finished chapter one. I want to take a second and I wanted to back off of that book and take uh, talk about some of the implications to John chapter 1, especially as pertaining to our culture. In the last few months, it seems like every time I turn around, we're having a conversation about this feeling or that bathroom or you name it. And uh, when you get into it, it just all boils down to a conversation about what do we trust? What do we stand on? What is truth? Where do you get your information for life? And how do you live? And as I've been thinking about that, it always takes me back to the gospel. And the gospel has been explained many times in this simple way, that it is a great exchange. And maybe you're here today and, it's, and you're at church because somebody invited you, or you've heard about being saved, or you know this idea, you're just kind of like, I need, to, I need to be at church, I don't know why. But being saved, you've heard Christians say this, is really being saved from hell is the idea, that there is a judgment that's coming because of sin. And then what Jesus did on the cross is a great exchange. He took all of our sin, if we're willing to give it, to him to give us all of his goodness and righteousness. So he's willing to take all of our mess, all of the evil, even the good that we've done that's not worth it, and he's willing to give us everything that we need to enter into heaven, number one. Number two, to wind up having a relationship with God, to be adopted into his family, and to have eternal life forever. And this is this gift that's given. You give him all your mess, and he gives you all of that. And once a Christian has received that, we would say they're saved. Does anybody disagree with me on this? I hope not. So we're good. We're all on the same page. Good. And the reality is that's what we would call the gospel or what saves you. These are the beliefs that you need to hold to be saved. Now, what is really also going on though, and this is where I wanted to kind of turn the corner today to have a conversation about this issue of, um, of inerrancy and why John 1 is aiming at that is this. It sits on top of a set of doctrines Oh, anybody like Jenga? Any Jenga fans out there? Awesome. I don't like Jenga, so because I'm not very good at it. Especially the giant life-size Jenga ones in the backyards. I'm like, oh, I knocked it over. But the reality is Jenga is, is this game, and we understand that it all fits together with these blocks, and that if you move one, it brings instability to the rest. And so, and right there, the Jenga fans are like, that's why you're bad at it. You took it out the wrong way. But the... Um, The reality is that there are these doctrines and each one of these different doctrines and each one of these different things that we hold to upholds the gospel. To to disbelieve in particular doctrines, like way up at the top might be like a doctrine in, say, the belief of the virgin birth of Jesus. And that would be way up here. I I would never be a surgeon. And so the, and that's standing way at the top. 
And so while that may not be believed by some people, they can still hold to their faith and wonder and doubt whether Jesus was um, born of a virgin. We don't say it's salvific, but we would say it begins to erode the foundation of what, of what your salvation sits on. Some of these are even more critical as you go further and further in. One of those doctrines is a whole set that surrounds this, the Bible. And the Bible is one of those things that's in constant constant. Um, attack of late, continuously and over and over again in the university system, in the culture, and all the time what they're doing is they're aiming at these various doctrines, and we don't, they don't even realize they're doing it, they don't know what the doctrines are, but they, they're aiming at these various doctrines dealing with what we are, are essential. And one of those that we're looking at is this idea of inerrancy. And inerrancy is a, is a doctrine that's way down here at the bottom, that if disbelieved, it's sitting on a whole bunch of others, namely like do you believe that God exists? Well, yes, I believe that God exists. Well, how do you know God exists is the, next, is the next question. Well, we would reply because God has revealed himself to us. And so that's the start, that God has revealed himself to humanity and we, he's, we've, he's done so through the inerrant word of God. So you've got God exists, you've got he's revealed himself, and that's where John chapter 1, verse 1 jumps in. How has God revealed himself? Why don't we turn there, do a quick review of John 1, and then we'll kind of start breaking out on this conversation and why it's important in our culture today. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. Now, this word is, is a spoken word. It's the logos. It's, the, it's what we're doing right now. When I read it out, that's the same idea. And so this is God's word, his own speaking that is God and eventually creates everything. And in, in this word was life and the life was the light of men. And it was the light that shines in the darkness. And John the Baptist is this witness to the light. And then he goes on to say that this true light has come into the world and it didn't know him. In fact, he came to his own people and they didn't receive him. So here's this one who actually in verse 14, the word becomes flesh, a human being and dwells among us. So we go from this word who is God to the word who dwells among us, namely Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is showing us who God is. And John's saying this because he wants to make it clear. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God, how God acts, look at Jesus. The way Jesus lived is the way God lived. When you get to know Jesus, you get to know God. Here's the problem. Jesus is not like Elvis. Say, what? There are plenty of Elvis sightings constantly happening, right? Or they used to be. Everybody's pretty reasonable he's dead now. But there used to be all these Elvis sightings. You saw Elvis. We saw Elvis. Now, Jesus, you don't see Jesus. You don't have a Jesus sighting. Like, I saw Jesus walking around. So now I can follow after the physical Jesus to get to know Jesus. I get to actually be with Jesus and, and sit with Jesus and talk. Jesus isn't here. He doesn't walk with us. He doesn't talk with us. Yes, we have his spirit. We'll deal with that later in the book of John. But right now, the physical Jesus who represents God on earth does not exist on the planet right now. He's in heaven, ascended. What do we do? In fact, it's even more difficult as we see verse 18 that no one's ever seen God. So who's going to tell us about him? When the only God who is the Father's side, namely Jesus, has made him known. Where do we turn? And yet that's exactly what John is putting. He's saying, listen, we saw him. Go back up, if you will, to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. 
These people who saw him are trying to tell you, look, we know what Jesus is like and we wrote it down. We saw who Jesus was and we put it into words. You know how important this is? That you and I have received a book that actually tells us about how God lived on earth. That he revealed to us who he was and how he lived. And so God revealed himself in Jesus very clearly and ultimately. But he also did other things. He revealed himself in creation, it says in the book of Psalms. He revealed himself in the miracles when he parted the waters of the Red Sea. When he came and he spoke to the prophets and they spoke to the people. When he did miracles, God revealed himself. And yet here's a problem. All of that stuff that we know about God comes from what? The Bible. It comes from what God has revealed to these people, and they wrote it down, and now we have an issue because if he reveals it to certain people and they write it down, whose words are they? Paul, in speaking about the word of God and speaking to Timothy, who is going to preach the word of God, he talks about the written word of God. He says, Look, all this written word, all this scripture is breathed out by God. And some of your translations, if you, if you read that, it'll say it's inspired by God. And I'm not talking about like, dude, that guy inspires me. You know, like somehow you've called upon the muses and now you've written something really good, some epic poetry or this awesome song that's totally inspired by God. No, none of the songs we sing are inspired in the same way. This literally means that God worked through human beings in a way that he wrote down the words he wanted us to have. And that's what's going on. In fact, if you want to look at another place, you can look in 2 Peter chapter 1. At the end of the chapter, Peter talks about this, that literally the prophets and the apostles were led along. It's as if he used them like pens, but not just them. He used their experiences. He used their culture. He used their knowledge. And he wrapped it all in so that when you read the Bible, you can actually figure out if this isn't, who's, author, who's the author. Because it seems to be, Many different personalities who've written in the Bible, they use different ways of using Greek. They have different experiences when they're with Jesus. They're talking from different interviews like Luke was. And all this combines as God intends it to give us what we have, the Bible. Now, here's the thing. If, if the Bible is really God's breathed out word that is supposed to lead us in life for reproof, correction, righteousness, to train us for every good work... If this is how we're supposed to lay down our lives and live from it, we better be darn sure that it's true. Inerrancy comes right in there. Because Jesus actually turns to everybody, his disciples, and in his prayer, he's talking to his father and he tells them this, God set them apart, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Wow. Wow. Your word is truth. We're like, amen, right? That's awesome. God's given us his truth and it makes us different. It sets us apart. That's his truth. Well, here's the problem with that. Along will come a guy a few verses later named Pilate who's going to stand there and hear that Jesus testifies the truth. And Pilate's going to ask this question. <laughs> what is truth? And you know what? If you've ever been in the world of philosophy, anybody into the world of philosophy? You'll find out one thing. They have no idea how to answer that question. How do you answer what is truth? When truth could be all that you experience. Let, let me trip you out for a second. You're only experiencing what's going on inside your head. Do you realize that? I mean, you're like in the matrix, man. You think you see me, but all you're seeing is the sense perception of me, and that's all you've got going on in your brain right now. 
your, your memories and your experiences and the light that's shining is all happening in your head. I may not even exist. And this is what philosophers get into. And so other guys go, that's ridiculous. I don't even exist. All there are are scientific laws and rules. And if you poke and prod enough, you'll find out all this stuff is represented in reality. If you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, you can't see it, it doesn't exist. Huh. None of your feelings or emotions matter because you can't touch, taste, or any of that stuff with those. And so there's all these rules. What's true? What's true? And yet Jesus is sitting here saying, your word is truth. And so in that, Christians have had to step back because people have said, well, that's not true. And that's not true. Well, we get you're trying to say that's true, but it's only true this way. And Christians have had to live in this world in which we're trying to explain what it means. And so we came up with this word that helps us kind of level the playing field. We say the Bible is inerrant. Inerrant is a big fat word that means it is without error. When it, sells you, when it tells you something, it is making good on its claims. But note this, the Bible is inerrant insofar as it matches your Bibles that are sitting here, insofar as it matches the original text. And we say, why that? Why are you going all the way back there? Because guess what? There's been, these been copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies for 2,000 years. And that, that may leave some of you guys like, oh, I don't like that idea. How do I know this is any good? Well, we'll get into that, but I want to challenge you guys. And you, if you really want a whole sermon on that topic, you can go back to our sermon series called Static that actually we, we did many years ago. It's on our website. You can go to that and listen through the arguments for those pieces. But right now, I just want to let you know, we have tens of thousands of manuscripts. We have plenty of evidence to let you be sure that the English Bible that you have is probably one of the most accurate English Bibles you could, you could have right now. That's why we like, I like the ESV. It's one of the most attested biblical manuscripts, all this stuff. And that's why I don't use the King James, just to be quite honest. The King James is based off old information. This is based upon the tens of thousands of documents that we've accumulated over time. So I just want to bring that in. Why are you saying that to me? Why are you giving me this information? Because I want you to be able to trust your Bible, that it is God's truth to you given to you in human forms. And I mean forms. Anybody ever been glad God just didn't hand you a systematic textbook? Just this textbook with some, you know, how they are with some photos here and there and some dark highlighted words and some review questions at the end of every chapter. Who would enjoy that? And yet people enjoy the Bible. Why? Any music fans in here? Raise your hand if you're like a total music fan. You love music. You even read the CD lyrics on the jacket because you want to get to know the song. Okay. Aren't you glad God loves music too? He wrote an entire book called The Psalms. Now, we lost the music, unfortunately, but he gave you some pretty darn amazing lyrics. And those of us, anybody in here who likes poetry, you read the, you know, you read the Iliad and the Odyssey every year, and I'm just kidding, maybe not that far, but you know, you, you know, you've read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you enjoy epic poetry, you, you would know, certain, nobody's a poet in here anymore, any poets? Okay, a few of you guys, yeah, you're all in high school because you're demanded to, but no, the, uh, the, my wife loves poetry, so we got like Eugene Anjanu and all these different kinds of poetry in our house. And, and I just, it, it, it's fascinating because poetry exposes something that prose can't. And I don't mean like professionals, I mean prose as in the way of writing. How many of you like a good fiction book? You're like mystery book or historical fiction or whatever. We like the flow of a, of a story. How many just hate reading altogether? 
There are audio Bibles available online. You can get one of those. And uh, actually, originally, the Bible was read orally. It was presented orally, and that was the goal. But my, my point is simply that, aren't we glad God didn't just chip pick one genre to write in? He used constitution. He wrote in these very clear themes of of poetry, epic poems. He, he, he had this political discourse in the prophets. He writes historical narrative, not fiction, but historical narrative, like we tell stories. So you can trust what's being told to you. Some people will read the historical stuff and they'll say, well, that's not really what happened. Of course, it's not exactly what happened. Husbands, you get what this is like. At least I do. I come home and I come from an elders meeting and my wife will go, so what happened? And I have to be like, man, that's a lot of hours to kind of condense and think through. And I give her like a synopsis of what's gone on. There are cases in certain conversations that influence our family. She's like, I want to know exactly what you said. I'm just going to tell you that never goes well. (laughs) In the meantime, my wife will come home from a conversation with her friends that has lasted for four hours and be like, well, how did it go? And I will get a blow by blow recount of every single term and word that was used. And along with commentary, exposing what was going on in her mind at that exact moment. And when she made that statement, I'm just like, how do you do this? (laughs) The Bible does both. But it's not exact. Even when my wife's recounting, she's not giving the exact words. She's giving you a narrative. And the word of God is a narrative spoken to us. This is what is true. And God is not lying to us. What he gives us in the form as it was delivered is exactly what we need to know. He inspired every word to be given and delivered to us so that we can know him. We can know what he's done in history. And that's the point and the goal. And inerrancy is part of that, is, is a big piece of why that's important. Now, note that does not mean that your interpretation of the Bible is inerrant, okay? There are some people that want to run around and tell you there's only one way to understand Genesis chapter 1, and that is it is exactly this model. You know, there are other debates on how to interpret Genesis 1. Nobody gets to say this is inerrant. Thank goodness, because how many end times debates are out there? You know, there's the pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, all-millennial, preterist, pre-post-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, pan-millennialists all believe it, whatever, it's just going to work out in the end. And the point is that, guys, none of those interpretations are inerrant. Our Bible is inerrant. And therefore, we can challenge any doctrine as long as we challenge it with God's word. That's what's powerful. Do you begin to see why it's so important that we hold to these essential doctrines? Because if you begin to lose inerrancy, you begin to wonder about inspiration. And then Revelation. No, no, I'm not going to keep going. I'm bad at Jenga. (laughs) But I want to do this because you know what? There are challenges out there and you're hitting them every day. There's intellectual challenges and there's emotional challenges. Inerrancy is challenged by these intellectual questions of what if or what about kind of things. Oh, what if or what about this? I'm sure you've ran into those. What about, what about that error? What about this thing? What if? What about? 
But before we get in there, I want to challenge something because this isn't a new way to debate. Um, the world has always challenged what God has said because it comes from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we have a very interesting setting where Eve has just re- has, has been created and now she's standing in the garden. She's near the tree and it's never told that God told Eve anything. It's implied that Adam passed it along. And so Adam tells her, look, there's a tree in the center of the garden. You're not to eat of it. Suddenly the serpent shows up and here's what he says, crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say You want to know the foundation point of temptation. You want to understand the foundation point of how to begin to see a faith erode is to dive into this question, did God actually say? I'm not saying we can't ask the question, is the Bible inerrant, and examine it. But if our heart condition is of skepticism, if we're standing back going, did God actually say? We're inserting something into the equation that's impossible for humans to do. You see, basically, he is asking her, can you really trust God? I mean, do you know for 100% certainty that he said this? That it, it was real? That it's true? You ever wondered that? Ever, anybody certain that we were going to start on time this morning? You're a smart crowd, right? It's like, is anybody certain your GPS is going to get you to where you want to go? And yet, we, we, we rely on these things all the time. What I find fascinating is imagine, you, if you want to do this, you can. You can open up your Maps app, and you can open up to the satellite position, if our internet was faster, and you can begin to actually look at your house from the sky. And you're thinking, this thing is so accurate. And you can actually type in to go somewhere else. It'll give you a route. It'll tell you exactly how many miles and how long it takes you. And you're like, this thing's so accurate. Zoom out a little bit. Is that really the shape of your city? It's not that accurate. Is that really how big California is? No, it's really not that accurate. Is Greenland really the size of the entire North American continent? When you zoom all the way out as it appears to be when you actually look at it, look how big Greenland is on that thing. I mean, no, because when you take a round earth that's not actually perfectly round and you try to put it on a two-dimensional platform, it distorts things no matter how close you zoom in. And yet, though we don't have 100% accuracy, many of us are willing to trust our first time getting somewhere to a GPS device, let alone you have even less, ac- less certainty that your tax information made it over the wires to the IRS this year, and yet you sent all that out. Thank you, TurboTax, right? But my friends, the point is, you can never have 100% accuracy. And when somebody tries to insert that into the equation, they're trying to smuggle an acid into your belief system. It's not about certainty. It's about confidence. You are confident that chair was going to hold you or you wouldn't have sat down. If every day you came in and saw somebody fall over because a chair, a leg fell off a chair, you wouldn't sit in the chair. You'd have less confidence because you know you don't have any certainty. And it's not about certainties when it comes to these doctrines. It's about confidence. You don't have to have 100%. How much do you need to have? Is it 60, 70, 80? The real question is when there's a misbalance, when do you trust God? And when do you doubt? And the reality is that some of you are going to have a different, a different threshold than others. 
Some of you are going to be a little bit skeptical a little bit longer, and it's going to take more, 80% sometimes, to get you there. And so what do we do? I don't want to deny that we shouldn't ask questions. In fact, I want to encourage you that we should, if you have questions, that they're okay. We already talked about that last week. But I want you to come with a heart of humility. And I want you to come in not doubting God, but giving him the benefit of the doubt and see what happens. So what do we do? Because there are a lot of what, about, what ifs and what abouts. For example, I'll give you a, I'll give you a couple just, just to deal with. One of the big ones is, what about all those other books? Anybody ever thrown that one at you? I mean, that was like ra- the rage like about uh, five years ago. Man, there's all these other books out there. That mean Catholic church, you know, they eliminated all the other books and they're not letting them in. And Time Magazine, everybody's trying to tell you you can't trust your Bible because you don't have all the books that are out there. Well, time out for a second. Is that really how the history works? Because there's other books called history books that we can read to answer those questions. But again, most of us don't like history books because we were taught not to like history books. So I did the reading for you. The, the, what happens, it, I'm just kidding, but the reality is that that's not really a problem. There's all this conspiracy about how we got our books and look at all these other books that weren't all, look, let, let's just back up. I have a tendency to trust people closer to the time period books are written than people who are guessing about what happened when they're further away. We actually have guys who are looking at those books that, and there's a lot of others that have disappeared through time that we don't have, that were making judgments about the books. And the reason they made those judgments is because they said, this just came to us. It's a new book. We never had this book before. And they had the right to make those judgments because their mentor's mentor was the apostle John. Papias is sitting there going, yeah, I've never seen these books before. My mentor, who was this guy, I don't remember his name's mentor, was John. And he gave us the books he knew, so we're pretty confident that's not one of the books. All the other churches are floating around going, we never heard of this book. Where'd this book come from? They know it's from another religion even. In fact, that's what you need to realize. Most of the books that are being pushed at you as another book for the Bible, it comes from another religious group called the Gnostics. The Gnostics came about in 200 AD, and the Gnostics believed that if you could know the right knowledge and have the right secret words and the secret knowledge, you could ascend through the demiurges of heaven that guarded you from getting into the pearly gates and eventually land in the presence of the true God, and Jesus could then usher you in. But if you didn't have that knowledge, you couldn't go in. And so Jesus was here to give you that knowledge. And here's the Gospel of Thomas to help you out. And here's the infancy Gospels to help you out. And here's our literature to help you out. And it would be like 2,000 years from now, people going, well, we've got all these Jehovah's Witness pamphlets. They should have been included in the Bible. And that's, but these people knew they weren't from their religion. This was not Christian literature. We don't put those in. Second, they're saying, this, isn't, this is Christian literature, but this is encouraging stuff. It would be like 2,000 years from now, people trying to argue Greg Laurie's really good books ought to be in the Bible. But they knew these aren't, these aren't the authors of the Bible. These are the guys. These aren't the apostles that are writing this. These are good pastors who are encouraging their flock. We need to trust these guys knew the difference when they indicated the list of that they knew were the books of the Bible. When they finally gathered together, 
the whole church finally came out of persecution, they were able to sit down and determine, hey, this is what the Jewish people in the Old Testament believed. And so we have an Old Testament. We have a knowledge of, the, of these books. And so they had a wise enough council and a wise enough group that they could indicate, we understand these don't contradict. All of the churches attest that these have been found in their churches. They've been, show, they've been shown, and I believe through prophets, attesting that they were inspired, that these are inspired, and they were written by apostles. We're good to go. These are the books, and that's how we came up with the books in your Bible. The other books, they don't really have much to say about what this says and whether it's inerrant or not. We have a trustworthy set that is clearly from the time period when Jesus was alive and when God was doing the things that he was doing. Now, we need to move forward also, though. What about, what about this one? What about all those errors and contradictions in the Bible? Again, I'll point you back to the static series. But like I said, there are tens of thousands of manuscripts. You can trust the Bible you have. We know where the errors are. We've written them down. In fact, I've got my Greek Bible up here. And in my Greek Bible, I love to show this, especially to people who come over claiming that their religion has the, has the right doctrines and documents and stuff. And all these are just attestations of various different things, misspellings. Um, none of them deal with actual doctrine. And so you, uh, we know them. We record them. I work with them. I'll let you know when I think something's different than according to what our Bibles that you hold say. But you can trust your English Bibles. But what about all those other errors? What other errors? You know, scientific errors, a firmament in the sky and, and all this. I mean, what's up with those? Well, let me put it this way. We need to get over ourselves. We're a, little, we're a little intellectually snobberish in our culture. We think we know better scientifically, and we do. And so when you pick up a Bible that was a book and a passage that was written in the 14th century BC, we're like, those people were not scientifically intellectual. They thought the sky was hard. <laughs> the Bible's an error. Well, time out. He was speaking to 14th century people, or BC people, and he's telling them in their language, I created the sky. Is, is he an error? No. We're reading error in because of our scientific knowledge. You know what they would read error into our culture? Our morals. They would look at us like, what happened to you guys? Because morals were pretty generally concise in the time period and understood in a lot of cases. And then they look at us and we'd be like, yeah, we know science. You got no clue about how to be wise. And the reality is, we can all be intellectually snobbery, but most of the errors we read into the Bible, they're not actually there. What about the numbers and stuff? Come on. We're going to go to where they round numbers. Yes, we round numbers. When I ask you your age, you don't turn to me and say, I am 38, three months, uh, 17 days, four hours, 23 minutes, and one, no, two, no, three seconds, no, four seconds. No, we don't do that. We approximate, and we're okay with that. The same thing happened there when they said the entire city was destroyed. Of course, they don't mean every human being died. They're using hyperbole. That's okay language. This is what happens when your husband comes home and says, how was the golf game? I crushed it, even though he got 100. You know, that's like the reality is that we, we exaggerate because of where we're at in context. The Bible does the same thing. It's not lying, and those aren't errors. It's just how humans communicate, and God is communicating in a way that we understand. So what do we do then like with, you know, the fact that it's all made up? I watch Zeitgeist on, on, on YouTube. I know what this is all about. 
This is this viewpoint that Christians and Jewish people, you know, like stole Egyptian mythology and grabbed the coat of Hammurabi and then they turn around and they, they grabbed uh, all these resurrection things from all these other religions and they created it out of whole cloth. Well, first of all, most of the best scholarly work that's been done pretty much says all those other resurrection stories were revised and added post-Christianity's coming. Otherwise, it had to do with the cycle of life, meaning, you know, summer, win- summer, fall, winter, spring. Other than that, you, yes, the code laws and the story forms were indeed adopted from the time period. Just like today, if God had inspired us, I doubt we would write a book. We would probably write a blog or we would have an epic television series that, we, that God was using through us because that's how we communicate in our culture. God chose to communicate through a word. He chose to communicate through scripture and he chose to use human beings with their experiences and genres and thoughts and that doesn't make the Bible with error. As, as we move through, again, I'll, I'll point back to static for some of those other pieces, but I need to move forward. I, I really think the issue here is then what do we do with the other, with the other deals? Because there are Inerrancy can be challenged by emotional what-ifs and what-about issues as well. And I'll make this short because it's pretty easily illustrated. How many people have I met who are so staunchly for hell being a conscious torment from separation from God until one of their loved ones dies without Jesus Christ? And suddenly they backpedal and they're changing their view of hell and the Bible doesn't really say that and... I've met families who are very clearly standing firm in their position of sexual actions within or without marriage until one of their children starts deviating or comes out of the closet. So they say, well, actually, no, I don't actually agree with that. And I don't think the Bible is saying that. How many people have say, yeah, I know the Bible says we shouldn't date non-Christians until they fall in love with one. And then the Bible never really said that, did it? Inerrancy is more likely in our culture fought on this grounds than any other. You will be given other people and other things to sympathize with and you'll be told you need to love them and they'll use the very Bible to undermine the very inerrancy of scripture that begins to erode other pieces as well. And sitting at the top is our salvation. And yes, for a time, we may be okay here and we may have these things. For a time, we may want to resist because we feel like it's intellectually dishonest or whatever. But eventually, we have to wind up looking at all these things. And we got to just basically realize there are answers. And we got to look at people with emotional things and say, look, I got to obey God rather than men. You don't think it was emotional when they were told, stop preaching Jesus or we're going to kill you? That's an emotional moment. Yet this was their, this was their response. I'm not telling you to hate people. That's not what the Bible ever says. Where does it say hate? It says they hate evil. But to love people. Guys, that's a different thing. And the further you dive into the scriptures, the more you're going to realize what, what it's calling us to live like and how, and how much our world needs that right now. But if we're going to wonder, did it really say, does it really say we're going to have an inherent instability in the rest of what we believe so that just the wrong bumps, the wrong pushes can cause problems? Now, there's some people who have abandoned inerrancy altogether. They just pulled it all the way out. 
They hold in their hands and started to wrote other things. And they start to wonder, you know, is the, is, is the Old Testament really telling us this story? Because I don't really believe in the Exodus anymore. There doesn't seem to really be much, much evidence out there. Oh, you know, I don't really think that, that this is what, what it says it's saying. And I, did God really reveal himself in that way? And, and so I'm just really curious, you know, and it just starts eroding away. And, but what they're doing is they're not leaving alone. Everybody on earth, hear me now, this is really important for your life. Everybody in this room and everybody on earth believes something isn't lying to them. Everybody believes something isn't lying to them. They have certain, they have at least confidence in something. And once you put these holes in, yeah, you'll try to replace them with other stuff. Or you'll just take the bottom out and you'll start with something else. Maybe, maybe you reset and it's all about yourself. Well, I feel, I feel. Isn't that what we're hearing today? I feel this way and therefore it's true. I feel, this, I feel like I've been this way, therefore you need to affirm my feelings. Guys, our feelings change with coffee. I'm dead serious. Your coffee will move your emotions to the forefront or it will put it, your feelings change. Your identity changes with the, drum, the drama of your life. There are things that have happened to you that you've forgotten that are still affecting you today in your childhood. I mean, guys, emotions are not simple things that we just affirm, but, that, but they have truth, some validity to them when they match with truth. And the reality is people have unmoored it. It's what you feel is what you are. And I want to declare to you guys today that I am a Supreme Court justice. You know, I, that's kind of the weird things that I want to get into, but I, I'm going to dodge that for a second and move forward. Some people will put it into science. It's called scientism. It's a literal thing out there where the scientists are the priestly class. If a scientist or a scientific journal says this, then it must be true. And this is exactly how it's worked, that scientific journals and things have claimed they found this gene, therefore this group of people is, is good. Right now they're arguing scientific, in scientific journals, they've discovered that human beings are inherently supposed to live with harems. That is the latest stuff that's out in the latest books. They're just setting the road for polygamy. That's all they're doing. But science says so. And so people say, if it is, it must be right. Look, science cannot say why or whether something is right or wrong. It can only say how something is. It can only say how. This is how it works. And here's the problem with modern science. It's been attested and admitted to one-third of the documentation in recent journals in the last couple decades has all been falsified. Science is falling apart because of politics, feelings, culture, and traditions. Culture and tradition is a big one. It's something people march around. This is my culture. This is my tradition. You need to believe it. You need to celebrate it. You need to believe with me. Tolerance is using that traditional cultural push. It is telling you, you must own this morality. You must be agreeing. You must celebrate because that's how culture is. Otherwise, you are a hater. You are a bigot. You are a this. You are a that. It's called cultural push. You feel it because it's real. And that reality is crushing. And that reality can make you want to wonder. But if you you can adopt, you can plug it in. Here's where cultural push goes to, guys. Hitler knew what cultural push did. And the Nazis used cultural push to silence churches and get away with whatever they wanted. And when it ultimately came down to what, he, what Hitler thought was going wrong, he had no evidence. He only had a feeling that it was the Jewish people's fault. 
We've already played this game. We've already seen where these things go. If you don't have something to govern the way we feel, the human experiences or the traditions that's beyond human experience, you have nothing to govern. In fact, in the ancient world, this is the point of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ignoring what the end of Joshua said, which is, choose for your day whom you'll serve. As for my house will serve the Lord. And Joshua understood the word of God was what governed his house. The people abandoned that, had no king, did whatever they wanted. You want to read one of the most saddening, disgusting, difficult books to read in the Bible, go home and read Judges. Don't read it to your kids. It's fascinating that Gideon's a hero when he's actually a mess. Samson's this cool guy when he's a disgusting pig. Because we change these guys into heroes for our children's ministry purposes. When in reality, the book of Judges is about what a culture does when it abandons God's governance. I'm not saying we're, I'm not arguing for a theocracy, don't hear me wrong, but when we abandon the word of God, it winds up to be whatever we want. And when that happens, you don't have anything left. What do you fill it with? Where does it go? How do you know what truth and what promise is real? And how do you determine whether Jesus really did these things? I mean, ultimately, this is where it goes. It just, it's unstable. And to pick up the pieces is so difficult. My friends, we, I'm not trying to fear you into this. I'm trying to show you that there is good evidence step by step along the way to show you that the word of God is indeed inerrant, inspired by God, given to us to govern culture, life, church, our own emotional experiences. If there isn't something beyond us to help us guide us. It's only our own emotions and experiences that guide us. And it can lead us in all kinds of crazy directions. So what do we do? How do we, how do we be sure that we're good here? Well, first of all, other than just answering all the objections and showing that it, it is, you can be confident, let me just put it this way. Let's just assume that for just for a second, that even the New Testament, the, the, the Gospels are not necessarily inerrant, but they're just good historical witnesses. They're just good, average, historical documents that are attesting to a guy who's pretty incredible, that did some pretty miraculous things, that seems pretty crazy. And as you put this together, you actually discover, and you, if you were to look through the evidence and sift through it, you discover that Jesus rose from the dead. This one who claimed he was God, in all the documents that we have, claimed he was God, in all the history that comes out, claimed he was God, and rose from the dead historically. And you know what? I have a tendency to go with the guy who rises from the dead. You know what Jesus thought of the Bible? In his same time when he's talking about this, this conversation with the Pharisees, he turns and he says, look, the scripture cannot be broken. That term cannot be broken means it can't be found with error. Jesus himself believed that the word of God could not be found with error. And he promised his disciples the Spirit would come and give them the words that he'd spoken so that we, as the church, could know the truth and the truth could set us free. And I want to encourage you guys that you're not on faulty ground to trust one who has risen from the dead. And that if you have somewhere that you have to wrestle first, wrestle with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's the pen, it's the peace that holds all the rest of this together. 
And I want to encourage you, if he's risen and he believed it was inerrant, you're on good ground to stand with him. I want to encourage you guys to continue to ask those questions and search. They're there. Don't trust me. I've been studying this for years. There's lots of answers and good evidence. But ultimately, you don't have to doubt. And you don't have to fear. And you do not have to be 100% certain. Do you hear me? I hope I've encouraged you guys to trust your Bible more, to put it at the center of your life. It is what will guide and lead you because God has given it to us to reveal himself to us and how to live on this world. So let me pray for us. Father, we uh, do, we ask that you would just continue and encourage and challenge us in your word, that we'd walk in your way and we would know you deeply. And the Lord, as we work through the text at church, we are actually working through what you've revealed to us and how to live. And as we read it at home, may it empower us and inspire us to live according to your way. And we ask this in Jesus' name.